my personality defect was um, a resistance of, of authority. I would move to the, according to the seasons or places that had no season and were always warm. All of the things that um, I've done in the past uh, require long distance travel. And so maybe I, I'm going to be like in the case of the newspapers where unless I change with the times, uh, sort of history rather than the future, but the idea of negative interest rates violates human nature. It don't go against economic logic. It goes against human nature. So the possibility of changing the mind of millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people is probably not going to work. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Great. Good to hear from you. So what's happening? Which part of the world are you at this point? Well, I'm, I'm in Thailand on the uh, island of Phuket in the midst of a lockdown. We're um, not allowed to leave the general vicinity of Kamala, which is a beach area. And, uh, you know, I'm just sort of um, waiting for things to, to loosen up. Hopefully at, by the end of this month of April, things might go back to something like normalcy. I understand you've been traveling quite a bit. Maybe we could say even that you're like a digital nomad, and not just for the last few years, but you've been doing that even decades. I've been doing it since before the idea was even discussed, almost by accident. Uh, in 1997, I decided to take a year off to write another book, and uh, I moved out to Asia trying to find a place to... Um, you know, sort of arrange myself. And I started in Hong Kong, but the cost of living there was so high, especially not living generally, but housing in particular. And after a few months, I decided I'd just take a break. And I went back to Bali where I visited maybe 10 years before. And I found it quite comfortable, quite cheap, a uh, good place to be to, to set about writing. And, um, While I was in Hong Kong, I, I made a lot of contacts and I picked up arrangements to be a weekly columnist in uh, a newspaper there. And then two or three other English language newspapers around Asia uh, made a similar offer. And so all of a sudden I found myself writing op-eds. I would start you know, three or four a week and finish three or four the next week. And I was sending these out uh, to all the different newspapers. And I realized that with the cost of living on Bali at that time being so low, that was just after the so-called Asian crisis, that even though my income was substantially less than it was as a full-time professor, My expenses were so much lower that I, the, the, the net result was that I was saving money. So all these op-eds distracted me from writing the book. And uh, I never did finish it. But for probably five years, my primary source of income was from writing op-eds and you know, living in warm places, 
year round. I would move to the, according to the seasons or places that had no season and were always warm, that were warm, cheap, had interesting people, had an internet connection, and espresso. Those were my five categories that I was looking for. So it had to be warm, relatively cheap to live, interesting people around, a good Wi-Fi connection. Back then it was dial-up, of course, <laughs> and, um, and uh, espresso. And so you'd be surprised. After a few years on Bali, I decided, well, you know, I've been there a long time. I thought I would look around. So I traveled around Southeast Asia and South Asia in search of, a, of another place. And one or the other of those five things was often missing, either the internet connection usually, sometimes a lack of interesting people, and sometimes an inability to get a good espresso. So I've been doing that. And then as newspapers went from print to online, the uh, willingness to pay for content evaporated. And I just didn't basically develop another business model. So since then, I've primarily been involved with lecturing at universities on invitation or giving conferences or attending international events of some sort. So I travel, you know, I, I reach elite status in the airline most years because I fly so much, or in the past I flew so much. <laughs> And uh, so that's, that's sort of what I've been doing. My intellectual and spiritual home is in Guatemala at the Universidad Francisco Marroquin, which is the only university in the world that has a classical liberal mission statement. It's quite a congenial place to be. So I'm there for two months of the year, a bit more than two months of the year, and happily have had a a very nice connection with those people since, uh, well, roughly 1999, I've been going down there. So that's, and then for the last 10 years, I've been lecturing in China in the summer for maybe, I would be in China for three or four weeks. There was a week-long summer camp, and then we would follow that up with uh, some events in Beijing, and, uh, but see, all these things seem to be, I'll be speaking more of that being my past rather than my future, because the future for all of these sort of international connections I've had are, are looking rather much more uncertain. Have you already seen that some of these uh, institutions, universities, places you've been lecturing and, and been associated with, they already jump into the new bandwagon, if there's any of these things already, meaning starting to have digital uh, lecturing and, and, you know, just inventing new ways of uh, delivering the services they're providing. Yes, indeed. Uh, in fact, at this moment, I would have been with the Free Market Roadshow. I think, actually, I was scheduled to be with them next week in Tirana. But in, instead of this being an event, last year I was in over a 14-day period, I was in 12 cities in 10 countries. So moving around virtually daily 
to give uh, presentations in person before a live audience. And this year they're doing it all online. So, in fact, I just realized they haven't contacted me whether the event that I was scheduled to participate in will be done online or whether they're arranging something else. I'm not sure. But my university in Guatemala, of course, has been, they've really been at the forefront of all kinds of technical innovations in in education, not only technical, but also uh, pedagogical innovations. Um, We moved in the last years towards what they refer to as a Socratic method of teaching, where it's more interactive and less lecture-based. We've had a very active online presence. The Escuela de Negocios, the graduate business faculty, had been engaging in online courses for quite a while. And now they made a transition for the entire university, for the moment in any case, to, to have distance learning, I suppose you would call it. So yes, there's a, a lot of changes. I, I'm waiting to find out whether our annual event in Shenyang at Northeastern University in China will go forward in July or August as it normally is. So we haven't heard yet. And even that might go on, but it may be online, which of course means that it'll be even easier for the authorities in Beijing to monitor us, but uh, that's also okay. So what are the aspects of teaching you like the most when you're in the campus? And, and what are the things you just don't enjoy too much and that you think would also benefit a bit more the students if, if we do things remotely? And, and maybe also that how the teaching methods you think will change in the future if you cannot see the students yeah. in real life? I actually think I have a comparative advantage in making a presentation before students because I I really make contact with students in that way. I found my attempts to to do online, I, I just didn't feel as effective because I'm sort of, as we say in English, uh, I'm an old dog and it's hard for me to learn new tricks. Maybe with practice, I would improve my online presentation, but standing before an audience and gauging their reactions, whether they're distracted looking at their laptops or their phones in the present day or whatever, sleeping in the old days, it's a better technique for me. I think I have a comparative advantage in that. And so maybe I'm going to be like in the case of the newspapers where unless I change with the times... sort of history rather than the future. But So I really do like the, the, the interaction with students because you can see, you know, in the audience who's alert and you can, in some cases, prompt those individuals to ask a question. You can see them on the verge sometimes, you know, especially in a smaller group that are eager to speak. So I, but I do think, I, I like the idea of this distance learning, it uh, is is probably the most sensible way of conducting education in the future because of the reduced costs and the extended reach of it all. So I, I like the idea. 
I also like the idea of the Socratic method of getting students to be more engaged in the, the actual learning process rather than being lectured to primarily. I think teaching is what I call a horse to water problem. That is, you can lead a horse to, to, to the water, but you can't force him to drink. And I think for me, teaching was always about encouraging them to want to drink, you know, by an enthusiasm for the subject that I think I pour into my lectures and my discussions with them. You mentioned that you basically was supposed to be city hopping as we speak, almost one country per day. Yeah. What are the things you enjoy in traveling? What are the things you could give some uh, tips and hints what not to do? Well, I get, you know, I really enjoy traveling to new places and discovering, I mean, several things are important to me when I travel. I want to try the local cuisine and whatever is involved, whether it's, you know, wine or some other sort of beverages that might be unique to the places I go to. The other thing that interests me is the architecture and the historical setting of it all. One of the great joys of, of, of being with the Free Market Roadshow over the last few years, just to inform your audience what the Free Market Roadshow is briefly, is is a has been an annual event where speakers would be sent to, I think, one year, I think there were 35 cities in 30 countries over roughly 30-day period. And so there would be a team of three or four often professors or think tank individuals that would be sent to a, a city with a local partner who would arrange a venue and an audience and perhaps local speakers as well to discuss a general topic uh, could be the one that we're discussing, they will be discussing now is the future of, of uh, liberty in Europe after the uh, coronavirus episode here. So there's a general theme and it's often shaped by what the local audiences want to hear. So one of the great joys of being part of that is that They sent me to primarily to Central and Eastern Europe and to many countries in that part of the world that I had not visited before. And I developed lots of very nice, good contacts and, and wonderful experiences. We would have these discussions during the day and then these wonderful evenings of continued discussions over uh, good food and good drink. And uh, it's hard to imagine a better life than, than that. What are the places still to go? I, I bet there's some corners of the world you haven't appeared yet and you would like to discover. And you know that you probably may have even friends there, but you haven't had a chance to visit them. What are those not so obvious places as well? In the last few years, I've been going to Mongolia. And uh, I hope that I can keep that up. I normally would go there either before or after I went to uh, my summer camp in, in China. When Mongolia, after the retreat of Soviet communism from them, they were basically a satellite under the Soviets. 
there was a moment of um, Wild West capitalism there that um, that generated a great deal of wealth and, and improvement in the well-being of the people. So it's a ex- very interesting place, and there's some highly spirited um, liberal or libertarians there that I'd made contact with. I enjoy, you know, going to Mongolia, and I, I hope I go back. Latin America, Brazil is perhaps one of the most fertile places for expanding the global human liberty movement, I think, of all the places I've been. I've been going there for the last couple of years. Um, there's a really bunch of, uh, a large group of very solid intellectuals and scholars and students that are embracing the ideas of human liberty. There's problems, but Danny, I think Brazil is a, a very um, a hopeful place of all of Latin America. I haven't been to Chile. There's a lot of Latin America that I haven't been been to. I make the joke that I'm a, a missionary for liberty, for human liberty, that um, I will go anywhere, and as long as someone will usually pay my way, at least to get me there, although uh, recently I even paid my own way just uh, because someone said they would put up an audience um, of people eager to hear ideas about um, why the um, their country would be made better off with an expansion of human liberties and uh, open and free markets. I, I, I think what I finally decided is that I may not even require that I be paid. So what's happened over time, and, and I'm revealing a secret that, uh, that, that might come back to haunt me, but uh, I have zero opportunity costs, which uh, means that <laughs> most of the things that I've been doing for the last years, with the exception of uh, lecturing in Guatemala, where I was a full-time professor there, I, I have no earnings from it. At, at most, they would pay my airfare and local expenses. Uh, I think people have either discovered or assumed that I have zero opportunity costs <laughs> because I do most of what I do now for um, without any um, compensation. The good part of that is I don't attract any uh, income tax liability, I suppose. That's one one way to look at it. I hate paying taxes. Do you think your way of working, lecturing around the world, traveling pretty much the whole year round, different places, maybe even staying for months in some place and then moving to another one, do you think that's coming more frequent? And do you do you see fellow professors maybe in a different line of teaching where they where they're doing the same? I hope not. I don't I don't want the competition. <laughs> I think I again I I was able to develop comparative advantage for a while uh virtually all the English language newspapers around Asia were interested in publishing my articles because there was nobody else doing it. Uh I had a great deal of difficulty being published in Europe or North America because there were lots of economists that would comment on public policy or whatever. I had, you know, a unique advantage and I was happy that I didn't have the competition at that time. Um, so maybe in the same way, uh, 
what I've been able to do, I, I perhaps had a kind of a, you know, had a unique offering of, of skills and background, uh, you know, to, 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 to be available. So in a way, like I say, I hope other people don't do it. But I think on the other hand, it's as of just in the last month, it's I, I wonder what are the prospects for the future for this? Um, you know, all of the things that um, I've done in the past uh, require long distance travel. Last year, I flew from Istanbul to Sydney for a conference for there for five days. Went from there to Kyrgyzstan, from there to Ulaanbaatar, from there to God knows where, you know, Armenia. So those kind of possibilities, I think, are going to become more and more difficult uh, with, uh, well, for example, with the bankruptcy of airlines. Uh, There may be fewer uh, connections, or maybe, maybe it'll just be consolidation in the airline industry. So I'm really un- unsure about how it's going to work out. And, and even if people did try to, uh, approach life in the same way that I have it, it, they might find it more difficult. Uh, it may have been just a, a, a golden moment that I had, uh, again, first, during the late 1990s and early 2000, uh, with the income flow from newspapers, print newspapers then, uh, that was something that worked very well and then disappeared. And then this travel worked very well and it may well disappear. So we'll see. Where is the place? Or what is the place you call home? Wherever I am. <laughs> Do you have a base? Well, I mean, I, that you have a bit I, more stuff? Or is everything in a suitcase? You well, my base, I, I tell people, my base is wherever I am. And uh, that right now, that's in the uh, region of Kamala, Phuket, Thailand. Uh, I do occasionally pass through the United States where I'm lucky enough to have a wonderful sister and brother-in-law where I leave a few clothes and um, I may, you know, change out of some and then take some other new ones or whatever. But uh, I'm not in the U.S. any more than maybe a few weeks over the entire year, usually on my way to or from somewhere. And, um, so I really don't uh, have a base. I, I use their mailing address if I ever need any anything sent to me. Uh, like a, a driving license, I keep a driving license in the state of Georgia and I have a U.S. passport. But other than that, uh, I have very little connection with the U.S. My, over the last, well, I've been going to Bali since 1990, well, 92, but regularly since 97, 98. And it's become 
the place now where I probably spend more time, I'm there for two or three or four months every year, but that's primarily for running. I, um, I go there to run on jungle trails with uh, some running groups that I've uh, been associated with for the last roughly 20 years. I try to do that. I used to do that a lot in Bangkok, but uh, I stopped going to Bangkok as much because most of the running there has been more on hard surfaces. And I, I do, you know, trail running and um, trail marathons rather than regular marathons on, in, in cities and so on. In fact, while I've been here, uh, I go out every morning at uh, just after dawn to go up into the hills. I go out for two or three or four hours for 10 or 20 kilometers in the hills, running or hiking or just uh, wandering around in the hills to you know, get some exercise and to... To, to enjoy the nature here. The beaches are closed. I, I used to run on the beach here, but uh, that's no longer possible. Uh, that attracts me. My uh, arrangements on Bali or Thailand, I wind up running much less because if I'm in Europe, I tend to be in more urban areas and the running is not as uh, inviting because it's harder to find forests or certainly not jungle there. Um, or I'm just there so temporarily uh, that there for a few days and uh, don't even get to unpack my uh, running shoes. So um, running it, it is a big distraction for me um, besides promoting human liberty. I guess those are my two, uh, my, my two big interests. Do you combine them ever? Well, actually, no. I got an interesting question. Uh, no, I don't. I, I wouldn't say so. Although, I often have run with uh, fellow libertarians, but uh, uh, crossover. Oh, I, I was, it's good you brought that up. I'll see if if I can think of something. I already came up with an idea. Yeah. Run for liberty. And then you could, you know, that's your campaign. You, you could practically yeah. run around the world. I leave, you know, how many kilometers you're going to do in a, in a course of a year or something. And then you could basically, you know, speak about these things and topics and, you know, join marathons and, and you know, sort of a theme and combining those two things. Good idea. Thank you for that proposal. That may, that may be my next golden opportunity to replace the, the other two that I seem to have lost. <laughs> You could even start on the beach. You just share it with the Instagram live feed or something and, yeah. and you know, starting that way in a nice, beautiful environment. Yeah, great idea. Really a good idea. Or invest in a GoPro or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, indeed. GoPro hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Run with Chris around the world yeah. towards liberty. Yeah. Not from liberty. <laughs> <laughs> How do you cope with loneliness? You said that you're traveling pretty much all the time and most of it by yourself. You're in a new place. Maybe you have friends. Maybe you don't have. Maybe they don't have time to meet you right now. But you have friends around the world which are 100 milliseconds away. 
but still they are different plays. Do you have some mechanisms because everyone now is experiencing this, maybe living in a place by themselves, cannot go out. It's sort of hard just to be inside and just don't see other people. Well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I've never experienced the idea of being lonely, partly because of the security of, of knowing that I do have so many friends and that I can always reach out in way, one way or another. I get tired of being alone sometimes. Uh, I think maybe loneliness is a neurosis that uh, escapes me. And um, I always have something to do. I, there, there's something that needs to be read. There's something that needs to be written. Uh, I, I guess, in get, or in my case, I could go out for a run. Uh, uh, I think there, there's, there's no, it's, it's just the way I am. I just, I don't, uh, don't dwell on, I think it's, yeah, I just never feel really lonely in that sense. Looking back your life, when did you know what are you going to do with your life? You know, was it always clear that you want to teach and educate? So no, what happened when you were growing up? No, not at all. I, you know, it was kind of a revelation at one moment. I went to university, well, because my brothers, all my siblings went to university. So it was what people did in my family. I mean, it, it was open to us. My mother had been in university. She, I think she, back in the, uh, I guess it would have been the 30s, uh, she was unusual for women back in the United States. She studied for two years in university. My father was a university graduate. And so they deemed it important that we go to university. So it was never a question that I wouldn't go to university, so I did. But... I thought I wanted to study the law, but in the United States, uh, legal studies are a postgraduate discipline. And in undergraduate school, they, they had what they called a pre-law society, where people who were maybe preparing to be lawyers or thinking about it. So I joined the society, and I didn't find anybody in there likable. So I gave that idea up, and um, I began studying economics for, uh, my father was in business, maybe. I wasn't thinking very deeply about all these things. And then after I, I, I had a military commitment uh, in the early 1970s, and I went back to graduate school. And we were drinking beer one night, and I thought, you know, I said, you know, I really don't know what I want to do. And one of my colleagues said, graduate student friends, said, well, you like what you're doing now? I said, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, we're, you know, learning interesting things and interacting and, you know, solving interesting problems. And he said, well, then it's, it's a no brainer. Become a professor. And I said, yeah, well. Yeah, I guess so. Because now I'm paid to learn. When I was a student, I paid someone to teach me. And now I'm paid to learn. So I, in order to be a, a professor, you have to learn new things. 
and you're compensated for doing it. You're rewarded for doing it. So uh, it was, I, I guess I would credit one of my, my friends for, you know, sort of pointing out what should have been the obvious to me, that this was my destiny, that I would um, become a professor. And I have no regrets. I mean, I've had, I really had a charmed life. I can't imagine that my life could have been any better than, than it has been doing anything else. That's a really lovely way of putting it. Be paid to learn. Yeah. How did you find free market economics? Was that something you stumbled upon or was it clear from the beginning? I was born in the late 40s, so I began my mature years in the 1960s. And of course, in the 1960s, there was a great deal of you know, social change going on. I suppose when I think about it with hindsight, I turned a personality defect into a career, I suppose, in a way. Uh, my personality defect was um, a resistance of, of authority, something that I always challenged or viewed as um, uh, something that needed to be challenged. And so, of course, that made authoritarian regimes out of the question in terms of my looking at the world around me and realizing that countries that relied upon extensive coercion, such as the Soviet Union at that time, then Red China, and then over time we began to see other countries um, as well. And I was, I was really lucky that, again, that I had some interesting professors uh, that taught economics from a free market perspective that uh, where those were my resistance to the idea of authority meshed very well with the idea of, of free markets. And then Again, I was lucky in graduate school that I was influenced by some very bright uh, fellow graduate students that, you know, gave me some, you know, support. We, we all pretty much followed a, a very similar track. I mean, although there were other, other people that were uh, less sympathetic to the ideas of human liberty than we were. But uh, I guess I, I found a, a great deal of support. And I think part of what I discovered uh, in my life is that libertarians are deeply humanistic people in the sense that all the professors I had uh, were very warm, engaging, encouraging, uh, Uh, of of my ideas, and so this sort of reinforced, I suppose that again that sort of human contact reinforced my um, my interest in these in these ideas. So I, again, in some ways, I was I was lucky to have good and supportive people around me that helped me develop my career. 
Uh, again, I, I, I've led a charmed and blessed life. I've, I've been surrounded by good people. Uh, and I allow people to help me. You know, I think this is something you need to learn, perhaps um, not to be suspicious of other people, that uh, uh, to perhaps seek out people that can help you uh, and be open to, um, to what they offer to you. Do you have any favorite philosophers, authors or thinkers or artists, you know, who are your sort of, uh, I don't know, favorite people or well, someone you enjoy and come back? I read mostly in terms of authors and so on. I read mostly historical or biographical uh, works some theoretical i just i've just finished a book by eric larson on um the war years of winston churchill um the um so eric larson is is someone whose work i i enjoy very much but um the um in terms of intellectual development i started off as what is known as a chicago school economists influenced by George Stigler and Milton Friedman, uh, Gary Becker. I took courses under many of the graduates of uh, the Department of Economics at the University of Chicago. Uh, but also the Virginia School, which is the beginning of the public choice economics. Students of Buchanan and Tulloch uh, were some of my professors and many of my colleagues eventually. So, uh, and then I stumbled onto what is known as the Austrian School of Economics. So, uh, my intellectual development has always been in the direction of humanistic economics, that is, human beings being at the heart of economic analysis, what um, von Mises called human action being the, the, the really the issue of economics, not these uh, official aggregates, these uh, macroeconomic concepts, that these, these false uh, ideas of, of, of economic uh, aggregates. So the Austrian school, Mises and Hayek, I often say that I, uh, I developed a deeper interest in social and political philosophy from Hayek, and then I developed a deeper understanding of economics from Mises. So I began to see some weaknesses and some problems in the Chicago school, which were, they're identified with free market economics, but uh, I think their model really doesn't hold up. And in fact, has been utilized by the worst offenders and the biggest enemies of the, I think of, uh, of human liberty as uh, central bankers. Uh, who have uh, really 
created havoc in the financial and economic world because of an ignorance of the, the wisdom of Austrian economics and by using the intellectual cover of the um, monetarist thinking that came out of the Chicago school. Milton Friedman was one of the great, he was one of the most brilliant men I ever met uh, or heard speak. Met him on numerous occasions. Studied uh, under people who studied under him, of course. Uh, read his works. He did a great service to the idea of making human liberty a respectable discussion topic. But unfortunately, the modern quantity theory of money has contributed to the disastrous unconventional monetary policy that we're living under today. Uh, all the central bankers are pretending that, uh, that they are operating under the guidance of Milton Friedman's insights. I would think that were he alive today, he would have much to criticize. And he might even rethink some of his um, early contributions, which were valuable at the time. But they, they at the moment, we, uh, we're really laboring under some terrible monetary policies. They go against human nature. They don't go against economic logic. It goes against human nature. The idea of negative interest rates violates human nature. It's not just a, a, a quirk. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's an absurdity, but it's passing for wisdom and insight in this uh, crazy world of central bankers. If you could teach one thing for someone who is in the public school at the moment, what would you say? You need to understand the importance of incentives and how incentives influence people's behavior. That it, it is probably one of, the, one of the key insights of economics is the importance of incentives because it would then influence your understanding of public policy and, um, and what makes politicians make public policy or what makes economists promote a certain public policy. Um, so all of the, I think, I think it's, it's, a, it's a key to understanding politics, economics, and, and, and human life. So I think that would be the single thing I would try to, 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 to put into to, to their mind and thinking. Is there some um, book you can recommend or some place to start with easily to learn the basics? I think in many ways, any of the work by Bastiat are very accessible and deeply insightful. You mean, for example, the law? The law, economic sophism. And what is seen and what is not seen. Yeah. And Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson, 
is a, a very straightforward book. Actually, Ken Skulan uh, published a book which contains many of the deep insights of Bastiat in an almost comic book form, which I found that people around the world that I've met uh, who engage the, who identify themselves as libertarian, many of them were uh, attracted to it by Skulan's book, um, Jonathan Gullible, it's called. Um, where do I get good coffee? What's the best coffee in the world? You've been sampling quite a many coffee shops, France. There are two conditions that make good coffee. High altitude volcanic soil. So that means Java, which gives the word Java, or Sumatra. Uh, in Jamaica, they have good coffee. Guatemala has excellent coffee. But you'll notice that all those places, high altitude volcanic soil. So... That's a guide. In terms of brands, Ely is my favorite brand, and Starbucks is my least favorite brand. Starbucks, for some reason, makes, I think because most people who go to Starbucks don't drink espresso, a, uh, a regrettable espresso blend. I'm on a ketogenic diet, and for the last two years, uh, my morning began with a usually a macchiato, an espresso with a little bit of foam that I mixed in with butter and uh, MCT oil, which is a refined coconut oil that I would blend with a little battery-powered hand blender. What is your favorite word? Well, it's perhaps. What is your least favorite word? No. What turns you on, creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Sunrise. What turns you off? Negativity. What is your favorite curse word? Fuck. What sound or noise do you love? Bird song in the morning. What sound or noise do you hate? Disco music that uh, is going on at a distance. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I really, I tried to think deeply about this, but I, I really, I won't give it up. I have had such a good life. I can't imagine anything would have made my life better than being a professor. What profession would you not like to do? Replace light bulbs at the top of an antenna on a high building. If you could be a co-founder of any startup at any era, which one would you choose? Seasteading. I would like to start a startup city. I tell people that I've become a secessionist in the sense that all these years, I tried to convince people that they should want to be free. But in fact, Many people don't want to be free. So the possibility of changing the minds of millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people is probably not going to work. So maybe the best thing that we could hope for 
is that we find like-minded people and then start our own city. A friend of mine in Honduras is setting up a um, something like a charter city, a startup city. Uh, maybe I'll have a future there somehow.